Are you tired of tribalism? I think a lot of what the left supports is satanic. The only time religious freedom is invoked is in the name of bigotry and discrimination. Are you exhausted by the culture war? If they don't like it here, they can leave. You could put half of Trump supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. Are you suspicious of those who say Jesus endorses their political party? Is it possible to be a good Christian and also be a member of the Republican Party? And the answer is absolutely not. From certainly a biblical standpoint, Christians could not vote Democratic. We trust the lamb, not the donkey or the elephant. This is the podcast that's too liberal for conservatives and too conservative for liberals. I'm Patrick Miller. And I'm Keith Simon. And we choose truth over tribe. Do you? Before we hop into the episode, I want to give you a little table of contents because we cover a lot of ground in the next hour and a half. If you've been listening along with us, you've caught that we've had a theme for the last few weeks around Christianity and celebrity. And in the first part of this series, we talked a little bit about how media, Christian media, creates celebrities. And in the second episode, we talked about how many of these celebrities come from outside of major Christian institutions. And in fact, this idea of outsiderism, it exists well outside of the church. It's a part of our culture right now. If you want to make a name for yourself, if you want to be a big deal in politics, if you want to be a big deal in the church, one of the best credentials you can have is being an outsider. So in this episode, we want to drill in on that a little bit more. Look at how this theme of outsiderism began to develop in the United States, how we're seeing it come to life in the church, both on the left and on the right in really interesting and tremendous ways. So let's hop in. Hey, Keith, you hear that there's a new church growth strategy out there? No, but I'm always interested. Uh, <laughs> maybe we could use it here at oh, the crossing. Do you okay, think? yeah, let's see. Let's see. Okay. All right. It's, it's called it's called act crazy all the time. <laughs> it's called have absolutely partisan takes all the time. But here's the key to it. You have to, whether or not you are, you have to pretend like you're an outsider. Well, it's interesting because I read an article in The Atlantic where a guy has grown his church from 100 to over thousands of people who come now. And what he does is he goes on a 15-minute political, cultural rant in the middle of the service. Like, not his sermon. He just does this rant and hundreds, maybe thousands of people have started going to this church. So... Maybe it does work. Oh, it absolutely works. I've read other things as well that are talking about a lot of these churches. Now, of course, in the evangelical world, they tend to be a little more right-leaning, right-wing. Oh, this is very right-wing. That's for sure. (laughs) And we're going to talk about another example in a second. But you can also find examples of this on the left side. Progressive churches that are growing. Now, they're not usually going to thousands, but they're growing from tens to hundreds because... (laughs) Well, maybe it's like blogs or Twitter followers are growing, right? Oh, absolutely. Tens of thousands of church followers. Now, here's what I think is so interesting is ask the question, why does being an outsider work so well to draw in people to your church, to draw in Twitter followers, to draw in listeners to your podcast. Now, I asked this on Twitter. (laughs) That's what I did there. And I got some great answers. This one's from Jason Staples. He's a professor at NC State. This is what he said to me. It's based on a suspicion of authority that grows out of two philosophical commitments. Commitment number one, all are equal. Number two, it's all about power. Combine those two, and it's a short trip to everyone's opinion is equally valid But don't trust anyone who might benefit from their expertise. (laughs) What's he teach? Because that's 
very insightful. I couldn't agree more. It's incredibly insightful. So he teaches philosophy, so so no shock. There it is. Makes he, sense. <laughs> he also teaches in the religious studies department, but it's really insightful. Take Here's another one. It's from a younger guy who listens. Flint Spencer wrote this, because we've been lied to by so many institutions, I think it's a dumb phenomenon, but I understand it. The dumb phenomenon being that outsiders have credibility. Yes. But he understands why we get there because all of us have this deep suspicion right now toward insiders and institutions. And so the way you build credibility is to say, I don't have any expertise, which is crazy when you think about it, right? I'm an outsider. I really don't know much, but it's how Donald Trump got elected, right? <laughs> I mean, you just follow that pattern for a while now in politics. Mitt Romney was a businessman. He was the guy who ran the Olympics. He was an outsider. Or President Obama, he ran as a community organizer. He was an outsider. Donald Trump, he was so much an outsider, he never held a position in government. And that's what people loved about him. Yeah, I think it's really true. But let's focus on the church. I want to circle back to how we're seeing this more broadly in culture. But let's start by focusing on the church. And I want to start with Greg Locke. You remember Greg Locke, right? Oh, man, that was one of the favorite. Interviews. If you haven't listened to the Greg Locke interview, you got to do yourself a favor and go back and listen to it. Can I be honest? There's part of me that's a little bit embarrassed by the interview. Really? So here's what I liked about it was Greg Locke is a pastor in Nashville. During COVID, he became CNN's favorite pastor. And the reason why was because he refused to close down his church. Well, he did for like two or three weeks, but then he said, you know what? We're not saying close for COVID. People have got to come here. And so many people came that he had to build a tent so that people could come and worship with him. But here's the other thing that you've got to know about Greg Locke. If you go back two or three years ago, he was just a total ordinary kind of evangelistic dude. You know, he talked about how to pray, how to fight anxiety, how to, you know, read your Bible. But starting in 2020, he took the political turn. He started condemning Democrats. He started condemning liberals. And then this fits in with the whole COVID thing. You keep fast forwarding, he becomes a COVID vaccine denier. And CNN, they love this guy. When you go to CNN's website, you'll find maybe one story mentioning Tim Keller's name in the last two years. You will find 15 about Greg Locke. They love them some Greg Locke. And he loves CNN. He loves talking about CNN from the pulpit and how much CNN hates him. Because guess what? He's an outsider. Well, they have a business relationship, much like <laughs> Trump and the CNN did. But it reminds me of that article I told you about, because the guy up there in Michigan is named Bolin, and his church is outside of Detroit. And that's what launched his career from being a guy who was a pastor of maybe 100 people to thousands. It was the vaccine. It was the politics. It was the stop the steal. It's that kind of thing. And you present yourself as an outsider because that is what people who are disaffected and they feel like that the country has left them behind and they can't trust anyone. They're drawn to that, whether it's politics or in their faith. Yeah, and one of the ways that obviously Greg Locke expressed his outsiderism was with vaccine skepticism. Now, he's an anti-vaxxer, period. So he doesn't want his kids vaccinated with anything. It's not just COVID. But when I talked to him on the podcast, I asked him a question. I said, hey, could I show you any information? Is there anything I could find out there that would convince you or that could convince you that you were wrong? And he said no. And he said no. In fact, let's listen to this clip. On a scale of 1 to 10, how confident do you feel about this COVID vaccine, about we should not take it, it is government overreach, there are other real cures out there, and we're just not using them? Like, Would you say, yes, I'm a 10, I'm a 9, where do you fall on that? 10 or 9 being what, that I'm against it or that oh, I'm sorry. for it? Yeah, you're like, which one is that? <laughs> you're going to trick me here. One being, I am not certain at all. I really don't know. And 10 being, I am absolutely certain you could not change my mind. I'm 20. <laughs> that wasn't an option, Greg. <laughs> I'm way past 10. I'm 10 to the 10th power, bro. Doesn't that yeah. alarm you at all? 
Not at all. Not one bit. It alarms me that so many people are believing the nonsense. That's what alarms me. Huh. This is just me. Now, again, I already call myself a cynic. There's hardly anything in my life that I would put a 10 on. You know, I'm not even sure I was born on October 7th, 1987. You know, that's what, that's what my parents tell me, and it's on a sheet somewhere, but well, I maybe I mean, give that one a nine. It's just a matter of perspective. Some people just have a different personality, just demonstrative in different ways. But I'm, <laughs> I'm way beyond a 10 on this one. So there's no evidence I or anyone else could show you that would change your mind about this? No. I mean, I've, I've studied it pretty good, and I, I know a lot of people. I just know there's no way. So there you have it. He's an outsider. He knows the truth. There's nothing, there's no data, no study, nothing that could possibly convince him otherwise. Now, here's what's interesting during the interview. So I said, I'm kind of embarrassed by it is part of me that thinks he was playing a little bit of a sheep, (laughs) you know, like there's part of him that I think knew how to be charming and kind and generous. But as I've watched what's happened afterwards, and now maybe he's just gotten crazy in the last year or even more crazy. It seems like, whoa, that's not the guy that I seem to talk to. Well, I remember listening to the conversation that you had with him and I thought you did a good job or he did a good job. Maybe you were being sold something, but kind of humanizing him. Remember he had adopted children overseas. He seemed to be a compassionate guy who was maybe misunderstood by the media, you know, and I really liked him more at the end of the interview than before. I don't agree with him on three things, but I liked him. I could see he was kind of human, just an ordinary dude. Let me explain why. He'd been to prison, right? Yeah, he'd been to prison. I mean, he's got a really interesting story, but let me explain why. The things I didn't know when I was doing the interview, the things that were going to happen afterwards. First of all, he used to have some associations with Baptist organizations, but he had broken those off. And the reason this was actually in a conversation that wasn't even on the podcast, we were talking beforehand. And he said, it's because he was changing his understanding of charismatic gifts, spirituality and spiritual warfare. Now, when he said that, I thought, you know, he's like some sort of speaking in tongues kind of thing. I don't know. I didn't realize that he was talking about this. We got first and last names of six witches that are in our church. And you know what's strange? Three of you are in this room right now. Three of you in the room right now. You better look in my eyeballs. We ain't afraid of you, you stinking witch. You devil-worshiping Satanist witch. We cast you out in the name of Jesus Christ. We break your spells. We break your curse. We got your first name. We got your last name. We even got an address for one of you. You so much as cough wrong, and I'll expose you in front of everybody in this tent, you stinking witch. You were sent to this church to destroy us. You were sent to this church to lure us in. You were sent to this church to cast spells. Listen, some of you been sick because you befriended that witch. Two of you in my wife's ladies' Bible study, and you know who you are, and we're going to ask you to get out, or I'll expose you in front of everybody. We got all six of their names. So, Keith, you still like him? <laughs> well, you can see why CNN loves him. <laughs> I mean, this dude's an entertainer. Like, I'm laughing on one level because it's so outrageous, and yet he's talking about real people, some of whom are in the room. Is some he of talking whom, about real people, or is he just making it some, all up because it's a great show? I read more about it. They kicked two women out of his wife's small group, her Bible study, because he said that they were witches. Now, I don't know the details of what happened. Now, here's what I'm 98, 99% positive about. The, unlike Greg Locke, I'm always open to contradictory information. This is spiritual abuse. Like whatever's happening here and what seemed to be the case is that these are just people who don't share their conservative, Christian-y, whatever-y values. So it, in other words, he took somebody who they disagreed with and he labeled them a witch. So he would have spiritual authority to drive them out, a spiritual excuse to drive them out. They wouldn't have to enter into dialogue. They wouldn't have to love their enemy. They wouldn't have to love their neighbor. Instead, they just call them witches. You're bad. Get out of here with your demon thoughts. 
I like it a lot more when I had it in my head that he had made all this up and it was just entertainment and he's a showman okay, up but there stop, just stop. staying even, saying even if, I don't agree with it. I don't like no, no, it. No, 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 no. Even if it's entertainment, think about how wrong this is because you've got thousands of people in a tent who are now going to go on their own witch hunts or think that this is true about reality. And he's presenting himself not just as an outsider to the cultural conversation as a serious conservative. He's also bringing himself as an outsider to Christianity, right? Look, I left the Baptist group because I'm charismatic. I see the real truth about these demonic realities that are happening behind us. I mean, this is the outside of outsiders. Here's something else, by the way, I didn't know. I knew that he'd had a divorce. Yeah, he talked about it on the, on the... Yeah, and I thought, oh, that was, that was pretty open. I said, hey, it's both of us issue. I made some mistakes. What I didn't know and has come out since was that he was cheating on his wife with his secretary. <laughs> That's what led to the divorce. Yeah, who's still working with him in the church, right? Now, he is that had, his new wife? Yeah, it's his new wife. Okay. Now, again, he's an outsider. He's tried to vehemently deny these things. But if you go online, you can find very clear proof and evidence of the fact that, yes, this was happening. I don't even want to know what no, the evidence. No, you don't want to know. Let's I'm glad you spend your time online so I don't have to. Here's the thing, Keith. Like, I also feel a sense of responsibility, right? Because you think I don't, he platformed this guy? Is that what you're going to say? I don't buy the whole Stop. platforming junk. Like seven people were listening to this back then. Oh, man, I don't it buy that. Grown. But, however, because it was such a humanizing interview for him, I've thought, you know, if he goes off the rails or shows a different side of his character, I have a responsibility to say, hey, you didn't get the full scoop here. But let's keep going as outsiderism, okay? He's getting tons of media, tons of followers. His numbers are going up like crazy until he got kicked off Twitter. <laughs> oh, is he still off? I think he's actually back is, on Is now. Elon going to bring him back? <laughs> like Elon will bring him back just like Trump. And then he also, around the same period that I interviewed him, was when he started releasing books like crazy. He's released something like three books in the last year. You're a slacker. What are you doing? He's releasing books. Well, and casting out witches, and, and what are you doing? <laughs> but here's the crazy part. Again, he's an outsider. The big publishers, the crazy part's still coming. <laughs> the, the big publishers won't publish him, right? Oh, because shocker. they're all the insiders. And you want to know who's publishing him? Lock Media uh, himself. They're self-published. Global Vision Media. And you want to know who's probably bringing in a lot of cash through this process? I mean, why in the world are you publishing so many books? Now that's a cynical take, but let's be honest here. It seems like it might be right. He's an outsider, though, right? It gets better and better. When I talked to him, I thought that he had a master's degree from a actual divinity school. But it turns out that those divinity schools, they've all been co-opted by the liberals. So he went to a unaccredited college, which is essentially a pay for a degree program to get a master's degree. These are all things I just didn't know at the time that we were interviewing him. Hmm, I thought he was maybe going to be self-educated or went to the Locke <laughs> University or something like that. No, he went to a fake college because he's not going to go on the inside. Now, he's such an outsider now that he's also begun burning books. But this Wednesday, if I say this, Wednesday, we gonna have a burning service. Oh yes, you heard me well. We gonna send that mess back to hell where it belongs. We gonna have us a burning service. I mean a burning service. Do not talk about them. My, my kids just won't obey and my marriage is just a crap fest and I come to church and I wanna shout but I got bondage and you sit around binge watching Harry Potter. I said it. We better get some people standing up or I know whose side you on, praise God. I said, I said it. You better get rid of that Harry Potter mess in your house. That is full-blown witchcraft. It's witchcraft. So, Patrick, in Acts 19, they burned books, right? They yeah. burned all their witchcraft. 
So you were for it until they got to the Harry Potter or what exactly? <laughs> well, I've never uh, been to a book burning, by the way. I haven't either, though. Apparently these are becoming more common in Tennessee. You know, so you're right. In Acts 19, the sorcerers burn their spell books, right? And so perhaps there really is a place for a, a healthy book burning in Christianity. Do you think that's really his the way he talks or do you think he's uh, no, playing I it up? That's how he talked when he's on the interview. I mean, maybe he's right by Harry Potter. I obviously strongly, vehemently think that he's wrong. I don't think a fiction book is teaching children how to do witchcraft. And I love I, Harry Potter. I think if you're dumb enough to believe that J.K. Rowling has somehow snuck real witch spells, <laughs> real witch spells. He does it better than you. <laughs> no, he's presenting himself as a cultural outsider. He's on the outside of Harry Potter. He can't be for that. He's not for that. Now, here's the most chilling one of him showing himself, I'm an outsider, is what he said about Democrats in a recent sermon. I'm to the place right now, if you vote Democrat, I don't even want you around this church. You can get out. You can get out, you demon. You can get out, you baby butchering election thief. You cannot be a Christian and vote Democrat in this nation. I don't care how mad that makes you. You get pissed off as you want to. You cannot be a Christian and vote Democrat in this nation. They are God-denying demons that butcher babies and hate this nation. They hate this nation. Get mad all you want to. I don't care if you stand. I don't care if you throw tomatoes, praise God. I'm about to throw a microphone up in his house. CNN can eat my dirty socks. You cannot be a Democrat and a Christian. You cannot. Somebody say amen. The rest of you, get out. Get out. Get out in the name of Jesus. I ain't playing your stupid games. Bunch of devils. I'm sick of it. Hey, we want to talk about the insurrection. Mm. Let me tell you something. You ain't seen the insurrection yet. You keep on pushing our buttons, you low-down, sorry compromisers. You God-hating communist America. You'll find out what an insurrection is because we ain't playing your garbage. We ain't playing your mess. My Bible says that the church of the living God is an institution that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And the Bible says that we'll take it by force. That's what the Bible says. That's what the Bible says. It's going to get worse. So CNN can eat his sock? Is <laughs> that what he said? Socks. I mean, you and I, we responded to this. We're, we're laughing in part because we're also able to watch. I mean, at the end there where he's talking about, you ain't seen an insurrection yet. He's looking straight into the camera. So he's no longer talking to the congregation. Because you can tell when he's talking to the congregation. He's pointing his finger at the camera. But the camera is his congregation. Bingo. Yeah. Right? So this is the irony of the outsider game, right? What could be more outsider-ish than saying that all the Democrats are demons? Than saying that, oh, you want to see a real insurrection? I'm going to show you a real insurrection. What could be more outsiderish? And by the way, what he's saying here is wrong. It's, I would say again, spiritually abusive. It's evil. It's using the Bible to justify terrible violence. Yeah, when he talks about the end about how the Bible says we're going to take it by force. And the way he says it, it's as if he's justifying what happened on January 6th by saying this is in the Bible that we take Capitol Hill by force. In but John if, 16, 5, of course it, it says doesn't. that we shall take the American Capitol by force. 
He's talking about the kingdom of God. I mean, right. it is absolutely insane statement, but we got to go back to what he does because he's mugging for the camera. Yeah, his authority comes from the number of followers he has. And the more outrageous he is, the more media attention he gets. And of course, that drives his follower account. And so what he's trying to do is gain a following of people who are watching him online, some of whom come in person, but they are the ones who give him his authority. His authority is not in institutions. It's not in training. It's not in education. It's not in other leaders inside of his church, his authority comes from the attention that he can generate. That's exactly right, Keith. I mean, this guy's got over 200,000 followers on Instagram. Now, I realize that might not compare to some people, but in Christian world, that is a boatload of eyes. And that's what makes it so ironic. He presents himself as the ultimate outsider of outsiders. And yet, by any terms of attention and visibility, he is not an outsider. This is a guy saying, I'm on the outside. No one gets me. I'm on the outside of the cultural conversation when the reality is he's a kind of social media insider. Yeah, he's an outsider in what he's saying, though. I think it's just that he's an outsider with power. And so if what you mean by outsider is that you don't have any cultural power, then no, his claim fails. But if what you're just saying is I'm an outsider in the sense that I'm outside of institutions and therefore I am accountable to no one, well, he qualifies. So let me go back to the main thesis, right? So maybe this is a little bit of my mea culpa on interviewing Greg Locke. And not that I regret doing it, but that there is this level where actually someone responded to me and said, hey, do you think he was kind of playing a sheep? Like, do you think you were a little bit taken in? And I responded to the person. I was like, you know, on some level, I feel like, yes, because what I'm looking at here is dark, it's destructive, but it fits into a broader pattern that we're seeing inside of our culture, which is that presenting yourself as an outsider is a way of gaining attention. And the way that you present yourself as an outsider is being someone who's not just saying that you're being attacked, but you present yourself as someone who wants to burn the existing institutions down. You're here to destroy. And that's where he ends, right? We're going to take this thing back by force. So I want to look at this pattern in other places because we see it both on the left and on the right. But since we're already on the right, let's just keep going down that path and talk about Fox News. Because if you listen to Fox News, you're going to hear a lot of this language. You hear people talking about them being outsiders or disruptors. You hear people talking about the elite, which are, of course, the people who are in control in their view. In one instance where I thought this was really interesting is an interview with Caitlyn Jenner. And it's on Fox News. So you've got a trans woman being interviewed <laughs> on a right-wing news channel talking about Elon Musk. But when she talks about Elon Musk, she compares him to Donald Trump. And I just want you to catch how she's describing both these figures and, importantly, celebrating both of these figures. <laughs> I'm loving it. We got him on the run. This is about money, power, and who's in control of the information flow here in our country. I am 100% behind Elon Musk and what he's doing. I, I kind of compare him to President Trump, because when President Trump was sworn into office, honestly, nobody, the media had no idea what to do with this guy. He was a disruptor. He was going to change things from the good old boys club that was happening in Washington, D.C. Elon Musk is coming from the outside. This guy builds rocket ships. <laughs> he builds electric cars. What does he know about the Internet? Okay, well, he's a very smart man, number one. And, and he has been affected by what is happening in social media. So he decided, you know what, I'm going to come in here and see what I can do about buying it. I am 100% uh, support of what he's doing. But he is an outsider. Nobody knows what he's going to do. 
the left is scared to death of him, so that's why they're attacking him. Yeah. So this is an interesting, just little segment from something relatively recent in history, but what are Elon Musk's credentials? Well, part of it's that he's intelligent, he's built rockets, right? And maybe that does have value when you're talking about owning a company like Twitter. But the main one is that he's just like Donald Trump. He's a disruptor and he's an outsider. Does the outsider thing appeal to you? Like, is there part of you that kind of gets excited about an outsider coming in and bringing some new ideas and changing things up. Uh, yeah. 100%. Because it does, there is something about it to me. And I don't know, is that just American culture I live in? Have I bought into some sort of lie? But I definitely understand the appeal of the outsider who rides in and brings some change to institutions that are kind of full of themselves, institutions that are uh, have failed us. I find it appealing. I think anybody who's listening to this has to be honest and say they probably also find it appealing. Now, the question is, like you said, is this just some sort of universal American phenomenon? Have we always doubted our institutions and that they would lead us to dark places if we followed them? And of course, you're going to find a strain of that at any point in history. But if you know your history, you'll also know there are times of much, much, much higher levels of institutional trust where you can go back, let's just say 50 years. You can't imagine someone like Donald Trump who'd had no political experience being elected to becoming a president. Well, but you could because go back further the, than that and find it, right? Like I said, we've had higher watermarks of institutional trust. Correct. So I'm but going we, back to the 50s and 60s. Correct. So we started as a country by overthrowing a king and democratizing the way we ran our country, including knowledge. And the revivals we've talked about have overthrown the clergy. And so our country was founded in kind of this populism. And I agree, there have been seasons in which institutions have thrived and been respected and had a lot of moral authority, but today isn't one of them. No, it's certainly not one of them. People have to understand what we're doing. We're trying to give a meta analysis, a higher level analysis of why is it that people are losing trust in institutions. Now for us, we really care about churches, but all institutions in general. Why is it that being an outsider is a credential? And we can see that there's ways in which that becomes a massive, huge, enormous problem. The other irony of the outsider conversation is that it's often a charade. Elon Musk is one of the wealthiest people in the world. Calling him an outsider, I guess I kind of get what it means. He's not a liberal elite in their worldview, and that makes him an outsider. But he's not an outsider by any stretch of the imagination. Caitlyn Jenner said all this on Fox, and Fox sets itself up to be an outsider to the media establishment, right? That's how they gained their credibility is yeah. that you have the mainstream media, and here comes Fox along to be disruptors. So that's kind of their whole shtick as well as their hosts. Yeah. Yeah, that's how Tucker Carlson has really made his name. And he's got tons of evangelical Christians thinking that he's some sort of outsider to the media establishment. He has no power and the cultural elites are controlling everything. Bro, you run the most watched cable news TV show in the world. So it shows how... <laughs> You're so, not an outsider. You can say lots of things to say you don't have power to say you're on the outside that you're confronting the people who have all the power. Those people do have power. I'm not discrediting that entirely, but I'm trying to say to present yourself as someone who is powerless on the outside of the system when you have the most watched cable news TV show in the world. Well, Tucker Carlson started back on CNN in, in more insiderish media and then now presents himself as an outsider. But it sounds to me like you're equating outsider and lack of power, insider with power. Because I think what Tucker Carlson well, would if, say if outsider is, that, is just a euphemism for conservative, then just call yourself a conservative. What does outsider mean then? If it doesn't mean I don't have power, I think I'm powerless. Well, I think 
I don't think that Tucker Carlson would say an outsider means you're powerless. I think an outsider in his world is one in which you are not in the majority of opinion in your sphere of influence. And so he has a message that is outside the mainstream media's message. I don't think he would deny that he has a lot of viewers. He brags about having a lot of viewers, but they all see themselves as outsiders not being listened to by the elite. I'm not saying they're right. I just think that's how they think I, about it. I guess it. what I'm trying to wrestle with here is what do you even mean at that point? I understand what elite means. I've used the term elite. So I get it on one level. I understand that you can find progressives in the highest echelons of Hollywood, in the highest echelons of government, in the highest echelons of business. Universities. Universities. So I grant all that. But to suggest that they're holding all of the cards, that they have all the power, and that you are an outsider to their power, it doesn't strike me as realistic because it's not the majority of people. So in the conservative world, the term is outsider versus insider. Now, this all happens on the left as well. People who say that they don't have power end up having far more power than you might be aware of. Yeah, so the term on the left that I think has a ton of semantic overlap with outsider in an interesting way, because I actually think outsider's identity politics. That's one of my discoveries in this conversation. Mm. That's all it is. I'm just beginning to realize it's identity politics, because you want to know what it is on the left? Marginalization. Is that the same as victimization? Well, I think that a yeah, victim would be someone who's marginalized. But what I mean is that on the left, to say I'm marginalized, to say, therefore, I'm not on the inside of power. Therefore, I have a special voice that should be listened to. Therefore, I'm right and you're wrong. Therefore, I'm not the elite. I'm not the one in power. I don't have the wealth. I don't have the cards. I'm marginalized. And you're going to tell us how this plays out in one particular group, and that's Black Lives Matter. And it's specifically in even one of the founders, Patrice Kohler's. Yeah, so it's probably important for Keith and I to say that when this movement started and people talked about Black Lives Matter, I think both of us were very comfortable with that phrase by itself. You know, some people got offended, all lives matter, but we understood what they were trying to say. Oh, huge difference between Massive the difference. phrase Black Lives Matter, which I think you should agree with and say amen, and the organization behind it, which in my opinion has taken advantage of a phrase that should be unifying and made it divisive. Absolutely. So I just want to read something from a Time Magazine expose on Patrice Kohler. This is what they said about her. Through these dimensions of Kohler's life, an intimate portrait of Black Lives Matter emerges. It's one of Black women building political power for marginalized people beyond themselves. That word marginalized was really common throughout the Time Magazine. This is part of how they, again, it's identity. This is how we identified ourselves. Another example, Kohler says this. She says, Black women are building the power of some of the most marginalized. Black women are centering people, not just themselves, that are being attacked by the right-wing government that we are living underneath right now. So you kind of see the outsiderism here, right? So she was obviously writing this while Donald Trump was in office, but she's saying, hey, we're the marginalized, we're not in power. And then this is from an official BLM statement. It had her picture next to it, so I think she wrote it, but it said this, since its inception, Black Lives Matter has been a movement aligned to truth and justice. We have functioned as a decentralized, directly democratic community, activating and allying with fearless leaders. We have reimagined and begun to create a next normal, one that values, validates, and recognizes humanity's interdependence with and reliance upon black people and our ability to thrive. We have centered voices and people most marginalized by societies and states. So again, we're seeing something really similar, just like Tucker Carlson said, hey, we're outsiders. We're on the outside of power. We kind of see a similar narrative happening here. We're marginalized people. We don't have the power and we're going to center those voices. Yeah. Nobody's listening to us. Nobody cares about us. We're victims. Turns out that maybe they have more power than they want you to know.
Yeah, so they peaked in their popularity in June of 2020. 52% of Americans were pro-BLM. So, you know, you do start having to ask the question, are you marginalized if 52% of the population gives you a big thumbs up? Well, and a lot of the people who are supporting them were people with power themselves. So people in government, but big business and CEOs and Hollywood and sports stars were wearing Black Lives Matter t-shirts, putting yard signs, putting up banners at their offices, coming out and saying that our company is behind Black Lives Matter. So how much of an outsider can you be when the establishment is trumpeting your message? Absolutely. In fact, during their peak month of giving, October 2020, they totaled $66.5 million in giving. In just one month? That was one month worth of giving. That was an enormous month for them. Their total amount, I think, was around $90 in million just in that one year. month? In one month, they pulled in $66.5 million. Now, I'm not wronging them for raising money. There's nothing wrong with raising money. Now, of course, the question when you're a nonprofit is, hey, how are you going to use these resources? And if your job is to center the voices of marginalized people— people who are on the outside of power. I could think of a lot of things you might want to do with that. But what we have discovered since is that during this period, they spent $6 million to buy Patrice Kohler's her own house, which she called a box, by the way. Box, like it was small. <laughs> it's thousands of square feet. <laughs> and it's in just California, but it's just a box. Yeah. It wasn't in a gated community. It was in a gated which community. I really liked that to keep out. Let's just not even marginalize. Yeah, I, it's just so funny. I'm like, what? Okay. After that, they ended up buying four additional homes for $3.2 million. And what's equally disturbing is that they tried to cover all this up. Well, I would too. <laughs> if you were taking all this money and then spending it kind of on yourself in a way that wasn't centering the voices of the powerless in whose name you raised all that money, I think I would hide it too. And from what I understand, they've done a really good job of hiding it because people aren't really sure where that, like you said, $90 million total that they raised went. People don't know where they went. It gets even weirder. These people who are so marginalized, they use their influence with social media companies and journalists to squash any stories or posts that revealed what was happening. So people say sunlight is the best disinfectant, and I guess they wanted their germs around because <laughs> they didn't want it to be cleansed through sunlight, knowledge, information. They didn't want to be transparent. And I wouldn't either if I was spending it all on myself. So <laughs> it makes sense. Who wants accountability? Greg Locke doesn't want accountability. No. And neither does the leadership of Black Lives Matter. Nobody wants accountability. Everybody wants to do what they want with their own stuff because they're the outsider. They've got the truth. They don't want to capitulate to the insiders. Absolutely. And more importantly, this is a narrative that works. You can bring in big bucks, big views, big attention by presenting yourself as an outsider or as a marginalized person. Now, I know what someone's going to do when they hear this and say, oh my gosh, you hear them, they're against Fox News. Or they're going to walk in and say, oh my gosh, you hear them, they're against BLM. We actually haven't talked about our opinions on these things. What we have tried to do is a meta, a higher level analysis of how are people communicating and why are they communicating this way? Why has outsiderism become the coin of the realm? Keith, if we want to grow a massive podcast or a huge church or a big movement, you want to know what the key is? To say that we are powerless and we're, we're the powerless. outsiders? We're powerless, we're outsiders, and we're here to burn this mother down. <laughs> because that's what both sides do. To burn the mother down. <laughs> to burn this mother down. <laughs> so obviously, we find all this interesting. And we asked the question, where did this come from? Is this something that's modern? Is this something that's ancient? And we said, look, there's different periods of time where there's more institutional trust and less institutional trust. And yet, I think that what's happening right now is different than what's happened in the past. I think that if we get into the details, we can begin to understand why the public, why everyday people have begun to revolt against these institutions 
that claimed to have so much knowledge, so much authority, and turned out to be in many cases, as our friend on Twitter said, to be liars, which has then validated the claims of outsiders who say, you can't trust those people. Let's burn them down without a plan to rebuild anything. So let's try to talk about that. Okay, so let's just do a gut check real quick. Like, where's your emotional state? Because we're thinking that maybe you're upset right now. Maybe it's because one of your sacred cows has been gored. Maybe you are a big Fox loyalist, or maybe you're a big Black Lives Matter loyalist, and you feel like we've been critical of them. Now, Patrick already pointed out that we really haven't criticized or affirmed either one. All we've tried to do is show that neither group are powerless, that both groups have a lot of social and cultural power. Are you upset with us because you think that the one that you love, Black Lives Matter or Fox News, really are outsiders? Or is there something else going on? What do you think, Patrick? I think it's an important moment for you to check your emotions. Because like he said, we weren't trying to make a point of pro or con either of those organizations. We are simply pointing out that they both have tremendous power. And we're also pointing out that there's a profound similarity in their style of communication and how they try to get things done. What's interesting, what they share in common, I joked with let's burn this mother down at the end of the segment, but that's what they share in common as well, which is a desire to tear down our existing institutions to build something different, although often it's very unclear whatever it is that they want to build. And I think this is important because we live in a nation that has all sorts of institutions that have actually served us very, very very well in many cases for centuries. And when you start tearing them down, there are social consequences. There are collective consequences that you might not foresee. I think of a guy named Ian Milheiser who writes about the Supreme Court for Vox, the online magazine. And he said that the person who leaked the draft of the Supreme Court opinion, which as we're having this conversation, we don't know who that was, but the Supreme Court opinion that looked like, at least at the time we're recording this, is going to overturn Roe, but of course somebody knows. He said that that leaker's attitude was, hey, just F it, we're going to burn this thing down. And that's- This thing being the Supreme Court. Yeah, just the Supreme Court, the Patriot the way that the conservative justices were approaching the Roe v. Wade decision, Ian Milheiser channeling the leaker's thoughts, said, we're just going to burn it down. And we hate institutions. We're nihilistic. We don't really have anything to put in its place, but we're sick of being lied to. We're sick of not having power, so we're going to burn it down. I think what you're saying is that approach is the Fox News approach. It's the Black Lives Matter approach. It's the outsider's mantra that we've come to the party and what we're contributing is lighter fluid. Or as Greg Locke said, Let's have a good old-fashioned book burning. Was that good? Was that, was that one good? No. Oh, dang it. I got to work on my southern accent. Uh, so <laughs> why are they always in the south? I don't know. Okay. Um, so what we need to do now in this segment is talk a little bit about history. All right. So we want to talk about why this anti-institutional moment is happening. Why is it that we've gone from a country that loved our institutions, believed in our institutions, and now want to burn those same institutions down? And I think it's because we have access to information that we didn't have before and that when we didn't have access to 
all the information, we had a greater respect for our institutions. The less you know, the greater your respect goes up. It's for sure true. So we need to do just a little bit of history. I'm going to elide over a lot of history. There's a lot more thought here than... Elide than- means skip. So <laughs> public school kids say skip. Private school kids say elide. Okay, as long as we're in private school mode, let's talk about the post-enlightenment era. Oh, wow. <laughs> no. Wake me up. So in the post-enlightenment era, so we're talking about 1700s, 1800s, 1900s, all the way up to the present, we begin to see the formation of all of these knowledge-collecting institutions. So you could talk about universities and academies. You could talk about institutions of science, natural science societies, geological societies, the National Academy of the Sciences, the National Academy of Engineering. You begin to see something similar happen in law as all of these nations are forming constitutions. They're beginning to form institutions like Congress or the Supreme Court or the presidency. And then you have lawyers whose job it is to argue and defend and create all kinds of case law that envelops the entire system. The point is, all of these systems, they're creating knowledge. It happens in publishing and journalism. You have professional guilds that begin to set standards for journalists. You have the National Broadcast Company, the American Broadcast Company. All of these institutions, whether they're businesses, whether they're legal institutions, whether they're academies, were in the business of gathering knowledge and using that expertise to create new things or to solve current problems. And what's interesting is that during this period, access to information was both expensive and technical and tightly controlled. And so this allowed the people who were members of these institutions to project a certain level of mastery. I mean, these were the experts. You think about Walter Cronkite and his old sign-off, and that's the way it was. I mean, that's a very definitive statement for a journalist to make, but that's the way the world was back then, that people trusted their institutions. So all these institutions that you just named, they had an aura of invincibility. Like they knew what they were talking about. They had the data. They had the information on their side. And we trusted them. They said they they were going to lead our nation, that they were highly educated people who knew what they were doing. And by and large, we believed them. And, you know, they had mixed results, to be frank. But in the moment, they seemed like our best hope to move forward as a country. But then we started getting access to more information and the credibility of those institutions began to crumble. So, for example, the Vietnam War did not enjoy the same kind of support as a World War II. And part of that is because we had more information about how that war was being fought. And you started to see the institutions crumble. We had Watergate and we had more information about the presidency. And we saw inside that there were people there who were being dishonest and institutions started to crumble. Well, then fast forward all the way up into the year 2001. And in the year 2001, we had twice as much information as year zero to year 2000. So you catch that? For the first 2000 years, the information that had been produced and it was available to the public doubled in one year. And all that information began to leak out. And the more the public found out, the more the public realized These people don't know what they're doing. These people are lying to us. These people are acting more confident than they really are. So get this. In 2001, humans generated 23 exabytes of information. Now, you don't know what an exabyte is, so let me put it this way. That's 140,000 libraries of Congress. That's how much information humans produced in a single year. And then it doubled in 2002. 
Now, our point in sharing this is that the amount of information we have and our ability to access it because of the internet has been growing exponentially, completely out of our control. And that means that the public, everyday people, they have access to disconfirming information, information that shows that the institutions that they trusted weren't being honest, that the problems they promised to solve, they actually didn't know how to solve, that the even science that they said that they were doing behind the scenes maybe wasn't as clear or well-reviewed as it should have been. We're going to get into some specific examples about how the elite, the insiders, the institutions lost their credibility. And I find it really, really interesting. But for now, let's just notice how the names of the institutions have changed over the years. So think of the national broadcasting system, the New York Times. They had this kind of august aura about them, that they were people who were in command and big national institutions. Now we call things Flickr, Twitter, (laughs) Google, TikTok. What's that show? What are the differences? Well, I think those institutions' names command much less respect. Yahoo, right? <laughs> it's funny when you think about it, right? You, know, you go from international business machines, which is IBM, to Twitter. Now, I promise no one on Twitter's board suggested, hey, maybe we should name this the National Microblog Corporation. No, of course. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be funny. That'd be funny. No one at Facebook said the Global Social Network Company. You know, No one at Google said the International Internet Index Corporation. No one did any of those things. They were the outsiders, They were the right? outsiders. <laughs> they were the outsiders, and their names reflected being the outsiders. And people enjoyed Facebook. People enjoyed Twitter, Google, because it gave them access to what only insiders had before them. And then they took that information, and they used it against the insiders. And I totally get it. I have a bit of that in me, too. But in the process... Just a bit. <laughs> all the institutions have come crumbling down. And you look around, and you go, uh-oh. Now what? You know, Keith, you and I were made for such a time as this because I think both of us are deeply drawn to this kind of outsiderism. We're both a little bit contrarian. We both like being on the outside. And that's why I need to talk about this because when you stop having shared institutions, when you stop having shared truth, when you can't rely on a study from Harvard to give you good information, remember that conversation we had? A woman comes into her office and she wants to talk about Black Lives Matter. And she wants to talk about that she thinks Patrick and I have been too hard on some of these organizations. This woman would consider herself very left of center. And in the course of talking about police violence, I mentioned a guy named Roland Fryer, who was a professor, the youngest black tenured professor in the history of Harvard. Super sharp, super smart, super driven. And he was showing all kinds of things about race and education and power. And then he touched on something that Harvard didn't like. And that is that he touched on police violence and how it relates to minorities. And it didn't come out like this woman in our office wanted it to come out. And I pointed out to her, I said, but do you realize that there's this young black tenured professor at Harvard who's produced a study that shows the opposite of what you're saying? And she looked at me and said, well, you can find a study that'll say anything. You asked her if she would look at it and she said no. (laughs) And then she explained, because you could find a study to say anything. She got a little bit of Greg Locke in her. (laughs) (laughs) Now, this illustrates a point. When you lose shared truth, when you lose institutions you can trust, no longer is persuasion the way you change people's minds. Because I can give you a study from Harvard and it does not count anymore. It is invalidated. And when you don't have persuasive power, the only thing that's left 
is power. Is raw power, not persuasive power, because there's no greed upon truth anymore. So now it's just who has the most votes, who has the most money, who has the most seats on the Supreme Court, who can enforce their power. Well, you see this on the no holds bar rhetoric on both sides, whether it's on the progressive side uh, using manipulative language about anyone who's anti-trans, you know, being violent or causing the suicide of trans people or you're a racist, you, you know, or it's on the other side, right? You look at the right and what they're now calling anti-grooming laws. Now, these are laws that are trying to keep trans education out of schools in Florida. But here's the point. That language, anti-grooming, I am sorry. Most teachers, even teachers who are for the trans agenda, are not trying to groom children. That's a technical term that talks about people who are trying to pedophilically rape your child. Well, what you have in that situation is people who have grown tired of being called racists. So they're going to turn around and play that game. If you're going to call me a racist at whatever I do, well, exactly. I'm going to call you a groomer. And instead of pursuing truth together, believing the best about one another and trying to get to a better place, now we're just going to use power politics to build our case against you, you know, make you look bad. There's no more persuasion. I can't persuade you. I can't have a reasonable conversation with you. So instead, there's only raw force. There's only rhetorical force. There's no shared truth. There's no shared institutions. So now what we have are these extreme groups think of themselves as outsiders using extreme powerful rhetoric to try to control the situation. But the rest of us, by the way, the vast majority of us standing in no man's land, taking bullets from both sides, not sure what to do. But the institutions have done it themselves because Roland Fryer, back to him for just a second, there's a documentary out you should take 30 minutes. I think it's 30 minutes and watch it because it's unbelievable. But he is run out of Harvard because they don't like the story that he's told. Well, he's run out of Harvard for what appear to be either faulty, maybe even made up allegations about sexual harassment. Well, yeah, I don't want to go down that road, but okay, you brought it up. Well, it's just so. anybody who knows the story, they can say, well, he got run out because of sexual harassment. Yeah, so. you go watch and, and what you'll find is that he got run out of Harvard because his data, his studies, his work didn't fit the narrative. He was a black man who didn't say what the other black people in power at Harvard wanted. It's a really sad story. But you're right. The institutions have done this to themselves. So let's do a little lightning round here and talk about some stories of how institutions have wrecked their credibility. This goes back to, again, what Flint Spencer said on Twitter. This is a great insight. He said, why is it that it's great to make yourself look like an outsider? He said, because we've been lied to by so many institutions. I think it's a dumb phenomenon, but I understand it. So let's start with academia. One of the institutions that has lost credibility is the university. And the way a university had gained credibility is there was a sense of which they were going to pursue the truth. And you had all these people from different fields with their PhDs and their academic credentials, but they were all working together to pursue kind of objective truth. And one of the tools that they used in that process is the peer review process. So peer review means that this study, before it's published, it is going to go through the hands of several other experts. They're all going to look at it and make sure that this study holds water, that it was done well in its methodology, that its conclusions are accurate. So it doesn't mean that it's for sure gospel truth, but it means that it went through a process that you could respect. And so when you received that study, you could go, okay, this is legitimate. Well, and it makes a lot of sense. Why do you have multiple people doing peer review? Well, it's because we know that individual humans are full of error. <laughs> individual humans are ideologues, but the peer review process 
presupposes the existence of independent-minded experts who are actually evaluating the study or the research or the writing based on manageable data sets or based on other credentials. And so the idea is if you have enough people looking at it, you might have a few people who let something sloppy go through or who try to stop something that's quality from going through. But gosh, on the whole, if we bring together the collective hive mind, we'll come to the truth. And yet the peer review process is absolutely broken. The brokenness was exposed first in what you might think of as the soft sciences, things like sociology. There are two guys with PhDs, James Lindsay and Peter Bogosian, who wrote absurd articles, like absolutely crazy absurd. Here's the title of one, Human Reaction to Rape, Culture, and Queer Performativity at Urban Dog Parks in Portland, Oregon. (laughs) And, and they took articles like this. Well, hold on, I got like to explain what's in the articles. They made up all kinds of data. They claimed that they went to a dog park for, I, I can't remember, <laughs> it was over a year every day and carefully analyzed all situations in which dogs raped other dogs. <laughs> at the, I just can't even say, well, at the dog park to draw conclusions about human sexuality and queer identity, both in humans and dog kind. Now, the entire study was entirely made up. It was absolutely false. Yeah, they submitted several of these articles to different journals that were peer-reviewed journals. And quite a few of their fake articles, fake studies, fake research were published. And so it kind of showed, at least at the soft science level, that the peer review process had been broken. It was more driven by a narrative or by ideology than real science. Yeah. So as long as you said something that fit the ideology, you could get into the journal. In fact, some of their articles were celebrated by people in the journals initially. Now, it's not just in the soft sciences, though. There are increasing cases in the hard sciences where you have what one analyst called research cartels, which is where you have a group of people who kind of set the standards. This is what we believe about this topic, and they stifle minority or unorthodox views, which is, of course, the opposite of science. Science is all about disconfirmation. It's the idea that, you know what, no one has the corner on truth, and we might come to some form of knowledge or discover something that proves wrong what we always thought to be wrong. So this comes out in something called ClimateGate back in 2009, where a bunch of emails were released right before a big climate meeting in Copenhagen. And these were hacked emails from the Climatic Research Union at the University of East Anglia in Britain. And these emails are of kind of imminent climatologists. And what they revealed was pretty unflattering. It was vain, petty, intolerant. Obsessed with media coverage. They didn't like outsiders. Anyone who didn't fit their version of what we should be saying about climate and climatology were critiqued. And here's the thing is that their email revealed that the data is messy. And really, that shouldn't surprise anyone. Rarely does data come to you in a form that's neatly packaged that fits exactly the narrative that you're saying. And what these emails revealed is, is that the climatologists were presenting an image that wasn't real, as if the data all led us to one conclusion about climate climate change. And so these emails led to FOIA requests, which are Freedom of Information Act. And what you find is, is that these scientists didn't want to release their information because they knew that they had presented a picture that wasn't completely accurate. In fact, because again, these were preeminent scientists, they were using the peer review process to do two things. One, to make sure that they and all their friends got published in all the best places, you know, quoting each other's work. The emails reveal this, that they were working together to squeeze some people out while bring other people in by who got... Who knew who and who fit the narrative. Yes. 
mean, when you read about it, to me, it was honestly really kind of sad. I thought this is not what science should be. Well, into this steps a guy named Steve McIntyre. Now, the outsider. He's the outsider. He's the enemy because he's an outsider. He doesn't have any position of authority. Instead, what he is is a blogger who's like really good at math. Just a smart dude out there. <laughs> I just I gotta pause for a second. Like that is the credentials of the moment. A blogger good at math who's talking to a totally corrupt institution of science. Let's keep going. He's like the barbarian at the gates though, right? If you're sitting in Rome, he's the barbarian at the gates. He's the bully out there that wants to know the raw data, wants to know the information, wants the institution to have to show its work. But the institution's not used to showing its work. The institution is used to being trusted. So he uses his superpowers of blogging and math to do everything that we just said. I mean, he's the one who really blew the whistle on this entire thing. Now, What's the important part? What did the climatologists do wrong? Well, obviously the peer review racket was wrong, but there was something even more fundamental. These institutions, these powerful institutions, they love to project mastery and control and knowledge. Certainty. We know all the certainty. And that was the mistake. The mistake was that they were actually uncertain about what was happening in our climate. In fact, one of the climatologists who looked at this afterwards said, it's not right to ignore uncertainty, but expressing this merely in an arbitrary way allows the uncertainty to swamp the magnitude of the change through time. So here's this image of science that people had of people in kind of their white coats, their lab coats, doing all this research on a quest to find the truth, kind of an Einstein. You know, Einstein looked like he had just woke up all the time. He wasn't somebody that was trying to gain a big following. He just is out there pursuing truth. But all that starts to collapse and science is exposed as being susceptible to the same kind of rivalries, the same kind of self-protection, turf battles battles as any other field out there, and it loses the trust that people had in it. You even see this in how businesses use science, right? So studies and research are really expensive. So somebody has to fund that. Is it government? Is it universities? Is it big business? So the idea is that you can go out and you can hire scientists to find whatever you want them to find as long as you pay them the right amount of money. And so people just get suspicious of it because now we can see that it's not as clear cut as they say, and we don't trust their motives anymore. So I'm saying something different is happening in the information wave or what Martin Gurry calls the fifth wave, we have so much more access to information that these institutions can no longer hide what's happening behind the scenes. The charade of expertise is falling apart. Another good example of this is what's happened recently with the CDC and the World Health Organization. Yeah, if you just replace the Climate Research Union with the CDC, you find the same kind of thing where an institution forfeits its trust, forfeits its authority because they weren't upfront and honest with people. So what did the medical authorities say, the CDC say? Well, they said that masks didn't work. Remember, there was a whole thing. We could go out and play clips, but you already know it. From Fauci to your local doctor to everybody in between, they just said, look, masks don't really stop a virus like this. And then all of a sudden, everybody must mask all the time. You must double mask. It just didn't make sense. But they didn't show their work. It's fine to change your mind. It's fine to say, hey, we have new data that show masks do work. That's called science. Then show 
that. But they didn't. Instead, it just went along with a narrative they were trying to sell. And sometimes they would just come out and say, hey, that was a noble lie. I mean, they flat out said it. Really, we just told you masks didn't work so that we could save the masks for the professionals. Well, just say that. Tell people, hey, look, masks work, but don't use them until the doctors all have them, the nurses, the medical staff have them. But they didn't. Instead, they told a noble lie. And, And here's a really, really big one, is they told everybody you have to shelter in place because we've got to shut down this virus, right? And so people had weddings that were called off. They had funerals that were called off. Grandma died alone in the hospital because we were told that we have to shelter in place and you can't go into hospitals to be with grandma. Social distancing. And then George Floyd was killed. And you can say murdered. That's fine with me. I mean, Derek Chauvin was convicted of it. So George Floyd is murdered and people, understandably, want to protest. They want to demonstrate. They want to say that we can't have things like this. And I agree with all that. So then people flooded out in the streets. And what did the medical community do? Did they say, oh my gosh, we should be sheltering in place. You can't be doing this. This virus is going to kill us all. No, they said, well, it's okay. Because evidently we have a socially justice-minded virus who doesn't spread (laughs) when you do protests for good things that fit the narrative. Well, So they lost a ton of credibility for that. Instead of saying, hey, look, this virus is very dangerous and I guess people can do whatever they want to do, but we strongly don't recommend it. We think there are going to be some big consequences to this. But of course, you have freedom to do what you want to do. They didn't do that. They acted like the virus had a social conscience. But guess what? It doesn't. Part of this is living in the information age. The reality is you have all these people sheltering in place. There's the possibility that people could have gone out and protested and people sheltering in place were relatively unaware of it. But of course, they're going to be aware of it because of social media, because they're going to see it on the news. We live in a moment where nothing is done in secret. And microphones are stuck in the doctor's faces, Fauci's faces, whoever the medical establishment, the CDC. What do you think about this? And at that point, they have to make a decision and they eroded trust. They forfeited their moral authority by what they decided. Let's do another one. The World Health Organization. They have also lost all of their moral authority. This has to do with the coronavirus lab leak theory. By the way, I bought into this. I said I like the outsider thing, but I actually, now that I'm talking, realize that there's a lot of ways I'm very prone to trust institutions. And so I remember I was on a text chain with some people and they were all saying, oh yeah, this thing definitely came out of China. And I was offended. Now I didn't think that they were racist or they were saying it for that kind of thing. I just thought, no, this is stupid. And you want to know why? And so I sent them this World Health Organization report that showed conclusively that this thing did not come out of the coronavirus lab in China. Well, I know why you didn't think it did. Why? Because Trump said it did. And you were just being (laughs) anti-Trump. So Trump said it came from a lab in China. And you said, no, I'm not going to go with him. And so you went with the establishment. (laughs) Oh, that's so good. That might have been the case. I I wish I could go back into my mind and answer that question with honesty. A lot of people did it for that reason. I don't know about That's for sure. Probably you. Maybe it was. But I remember I was like, oh, that's really curious. I looked into it. And that's where I went. I went to the World Health Organization. And they showed, you know, they did the research and what they were doing. Well, here's the problem. Do you want to know who funds the World Health Organization? (laughs) The CCP. Thankfully, I also followed the reporting of Josh Rogan, and he was one of the early people to begin to say, hey, guys, this lab leak theory, it makes a lot of sense. And because of his reporting, it became more and more evident that this isn't a theory. This is actually what happened. It turns out that when you have a coronavirus leak in the place where there is a novel coronavirus lab. (laughs) Wasn't that the John Stewart (laughs) thing? You've got a chocolate flood in Hershey, Pennsylvania, but it was not Hershey's. (laughs) Where did it come from? (laughs) Where did it come from? (laughs) I mean, Um, Now, again, they lost all of their authority and credibility because it turns out that they were just saying what the CCP wanted and they were not doing science. They lost their authority. That's what's happening in all of these institutions. 
We'll get back to the episode in just a second. But before we do, I want to encourage you to go and follow Truth Over Tribe on social. And it's not because we need more followers. Well, I need more followers. Follow me <laughs> on Twitter to help my insecurities and build my ego. Okay, so go follow Keith to help his insecurities. The reason why we want you to follow Truth Over Tribe is because we love interacting with you and hearing from you. For example, we did an abortion episode a while back, and we asked you, what do you think the church should do if Roe versus Wade is overturned? And you had so many great ideas. It was fun to chat and talk and hear what you were thinking. Yeah, without you, we can get locked into our own tunnel vision, and you bring so much perspective and different opinions to the conversation. So follow us and participate. Like, Give us your feedback. We want you to help make this show better. Okay, so we could keep going through more and more examples. I really want to do the Italy one. They're really good. So the Italy one is that there's a major fault line in Italy, and these scientists get together, and they say, look, this is not going to happen. We are not going to have an earthquake here. Definitively, there will be no earthquake. And then there's this weirdo who comes along and has a totally unorthodox way of predicting earthquakes. And he almost predicted it to the day. (laughs) And it turns out that the scientists, they knew that it was possible, not likely in their opinion, but possible. But instead of just saying that, they came out all definitive. No, it's never going to happen because they didn't want to give this outsider any credibility. But guess what? When the earthquake happened, the Italian government threw those earthquakeologists, I'm just going with that, in jail. Seismologists, just in case oh. everybody's wondering. <laughs> oh. Earthquakeologists are <laughs> better. I'm public school. So they threw them in jail because they had been so definitive and people died, lost their life. And they were like, well, you weren't honest with us. Because one of the earthquakeologists had said, I'm, I'm going to keep doing this it until it drives so you dumb. crazy. <laughs> I know. They said, yeah, we are so sure you can just go and enjoy a nice glass of wine and he even recommended a certain brand, a certain vintage of wine. That's how sure they were that they were right. So the short version of the story is they were very uncertain. They projected absolute certainty. As a result, people believed them and, and they, they went died. To jail. And then they went to jail. And this explains why in this cultural moment where we've gone from the ascendancy of the institutions of mastery who know all, can solve all of our problems to the point where now we see the lie. We know that they are far less certain than they should be, that they know far less than they've claimed. The new name of the game then is to burn it down. And the person to burn those institutions down for all their lies is the outsider or the marginalized. And this happens in uh, politics all the time. So everybody wants to run as the outsider. Nobody runs for president and says, I'm extremely well qualified. I've held all these positions within the government. I've been doing this for several decades and I am the person. Instead, even if they've served in government for decades, they somehow make themselves out to be the outsider because the outsider is the one with credibility. So think, for example, of President Obama. He, He ran as a community organizer in his first year as a United States senator. He was the outsider who was going to bring hope and change. Or think of AOC, Alexandria. Did you watch the documentary about her and her election run? Oh, no. There's a documentary? It's so fascinating. I mean, it is hagiography if you've ever seen it. Mm -hmm. I saw it at a very liberal film festival, and people were screaming with worshipful joy at the end of this film. I cannot make it up, but that's how she's presented. But here's the story. She's running in New York City, so the real election's the primary. (laughs) Right. She's in the Bronx. Yeah. You know that a Democrat's going to take the spot in the House of Representatives. And the person who was running was a leader in the House of Representatives. He was an incumbent. An old white man. An old white man. And that's the story the documentary tells, is how she, AOC, as the outsider, comes up against him. She doesn't have money. She doesn't have resources. She doesn't have the background. She doesn't have the qualifications. There's 
no way she's going to win. And then she wins. David and Goliath. She pulls it off. And she's kind of continued the same game of I'm an outsider, even inside of Congress. I call out my fellow Democrats. I'm the one who will speak the truth. When she goes to the Met Gala, she wears her tax the rich dress, right? Which I think was a way of saying, hey, I'm not like the rest of these elites out here. I'm saying these guys should get taxed. Now, of course, most of those elites would love to get taxed more because I'm sure it would be great for their consciences and they make so much money that it doesn't make a giant difference if you add a few percentage points to their tax bracket. But it highlights a point. She's just like Obama was. She's not really an outsider at this point, but she loves to present herself as an outsider who's coming up against the man. Right. She goes to one of the highest society events, the Met Gala, in a dress that tries to speak truth to power. But I think everybody kind of panned it. I think it failed. You're one of the people in power now. So you don't get to criticize yourself. But that's kind of the interesting thing is not only do these candidates run as outsiders, even if they're not really, some of them are. But then when they get into office, they govern as outsiders. But you can't govern as an outsider when you're the president of the United States. And yet that's what Donald Trump did. So remember how he ran. We want an outsider so much that we elected someone with no government experience. And that wasn't seen as a liability. Like, well, I think he can probably do a good job, even though he hasn't had it. It was, no, I support him because he doesn't have any. So the more ignorant, the more uneducated, the more unformed you are by government, the more credibility you have is going to fix government. Now, you wouldn't think that about anything else. Remember a couple episodes ago, we said you would never go pick a surgeon who has never practiced surgery, but we pick politicians who've never practiced a role in government. And it doesn't quite make sense. On the other hand, that's where we are. Yeah. When you don't trust the institution to form people you can trust, right? If it came out tomorrow that you couldn't trust medical schools to train surgeons, then you would stop caring whether or not your surgeon went to a medical school. And I think that's the condition that we're in right now. No one trusts government. And so I want to trust someone from outside the government who promises to drain the swamp to govern like an outsider. Now, Donald Trump, I mean, it's fascinating to watch how he governed because he wasn't just an outsider to government. When he gets in, he's an outsider to his own branch of government. The guy is constantly critiquing his branch, people that he put into place. Like he's the outsider. How dare this person who I hire to do this job, do this job the way that they're doing it. But that was the point. Being an outsider wasn't a bad thing. It was the key to success. Let's just summarize the big picture. We had these ascendant institutions. They had control of the information and they could exude mastery, a sense of knowing. In the information age, where there is more information being created now than in human history, their lies are being shown. It turns out they're not as certain as they said. It turns out they can't fulfill the promises they've promised. And people are angry. And the response is to look to outsiders who can burn those institutions down. Although there really isn't much of a plan to build anything in its place. This finally takes us back to what we see happening inside of the church.
All right, so we're back to the church, and we're wrestling with how outsiderism, burn this down, has affected the church that we love. And a guy named Brad Edwards that Patrick's friends with, I want to be friends with him, but he won't be friends with me, but he is friends with Patrick. I think he's private school. I'm not sure. (laughs) He said this. I think it's good. Decentralization flips authority structures upside down. So the decentralization of information means that now the barbarians are the one who are in authority, the ones who can get the most attention. They're the ones that are in authority. And the people who are used to power because of their institutional position are now on the run. Yeah, so now you think about it as a pastor. What are your credentials? Well, the more you seem like you're on the outside of denominational structures, educational structures, the normal ways that we have historically tried to train and equip pastors to lead, the more reliable and trustworthy and credible you are. And this happens on the progressive religious left as well as the Christian right, that they both honor outsiders. Yeah, so on the left, this is the heart of the deconstruction movement. It's all the same marginalization stuff. I'm a marginalized person, I'm in the church, and I'm here to burn this down. I'm here to decolonize it. There's an app, it's called the Our Bible app. And check out what they say on their website. They say that their app supports the belief that spirituality is a spectrum and that faith is a journey. At its core, the holy texts were written to be inclusive of all God's creation. And this is not the Bible app, the you version Bible app. No, this app. is Our Bible app. This is the response <laughs> to oh, okay. you version. But Check out what are scriptures ultimately about, especially those on the margins. So this is the Bible app for outsiders. And they bring in leaders with tens of thousands of followers, people like Michael Gungor in the Liturgist Podcast or Joe Lumen is an influencer on Twitter. And they're teaching classes. They're creating content for this app that's helping people to deconstruct their faith, which really just means burn down everything that they heard in church, burn down everything that the church taught them about theology, about God, about Jesus, and there's no vision for what you build in its place. I mean, the movement is literally called deconstruction. So on the left progressive side, they want to burn down the the white colonist, cisgendered, heteronormative, all those words, like the word salad, right? They want to burn all that down. They don't really have anything in its place. And the same kind of instinct sits on the right. On the right, it looks like culture warriors. On the right, it looks like Christian nationalism. And by the right here, we mean the extreme hard right, the fringe right, just like the you described the fringe left. I don't know if it's as extreme as what you're saying, because we can find these voices in major Christian publishing institutions. Such as? Well, let's start here. First things, it's kind of been one of the preeminent intellectual Christian news magazines, and it used to be fairly centrist, willing to critique both sides and bring in voices from both sides. It was started by a priest, Richard John Newhouse, and if I remember right, he was a man of the left who had moved right over the years, both theologically and politically. It was a Catholic magazine that had a robust dialogue. But it was very institutional, right? I mean, it represented kind of what you would think of as the elite Christian thinkers of the day. Oh, 100% it did. But now we're beginning to see it change because what you're seeing on, again, I don't want to call it fringe right because that's not fringe. <laughs> I don't right. want to call it fringe right because you can find it in the PCA and a lot of these major, the SPC, these major denominations. That's not fringe, right? It's fringe like Tucker Carlson's fringe. <laughs> it's fringe like Tucker Carlson's fringe. And here's what they're arguing. So there's been a number of articles by James Wood, and he's by far the nicest of the bunch, you know, so I want to give the guy some credit. 
credit, but the argument is this. The church has on some level been acculturated to the left or at least some form of kind of loosey-goosey moderateness, and as a result, it won't speak truth to the left. It always punches right and coddles left. And there's some truth, by the way. I was going to say, it's not all wrong. Yeah, there's some truth, by the way, to some of these critiques. But the argument then becomes that we no longer want anything to do with winsomeness. The cause is no longer to win people over. I think Owen Strachan put this best. And Owen Strachan is a professor. It was at Midwest Baptist Seminary and now has gone to a startup in Arkansas. And he's also on the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, which again is one of these kind of big, major Christian institutions, incredibly important. So this is what he said in his tweet. And let me give a little bit of context. He's talking to, honestly, probably people like you and me, Keith, who say, hey, the solution here is to win people to Jesus. The solution here is to renew our institution. The solution here is to name problems that have existed in the past, but to be willing to rebuild and do the hard work. This is what he says to people like us. It's so bro-ish, but I think that was kind of part of the joke and the point. He says, now, bro, we're done with this, quote, no bold clarity, just quiet winsomeness, so the God-hating elites like us. That's what we're over, right? That's we're, what we're over. We're over bold clarity and being winsome to win people to Jesus. Yeah, winsome so that the God-hating elites like us. We're over that, right? Because that's what you and I believe. We're over that stuff. We hereby declare that era over, dead, buried. Welcome to the age of bold witness and no fear. Bring matches. Well, bring matches tells you everything you need to know, right? He wants to burn something down. It also tells you that this is what happens when you don't believe in truth, because now there's no moral objective authority to persuade people to. Now it's just we are going to get power and we're going to try to enforce our vision of the world onto you. And we're going to tear you down if that's what's necessary. Absolutely. We're saying this because when we say winsomeness, we're not talking about being inoffensive. I mean, if you listen to this podcast, you have a hard time going there. We're not talking about being unconfrontational. We're not talking about being pro the status quo. We're not talking about being pro elites. That's not what we're talking well, about. He was criticizing bold clarity. I think we're pretty sneaky clear. We're for bold clarity and being winsome at the same time. Yeah. For us, winsomeness is not about winning over elites. I mean, that's just absolutely ridiculous. But you hear the outsiderism, right? Here's a guy who's seminary professor, who's part of a major Christian institution, and they're acting, they're pretending as though they're outsiders. It's silliness. They want to be outsiders because that's how you gain credibility. Everybody wants to feel like they're losing. You can raise money and you can generate enthusiasm from your base if you are losing. Because here's what you tell everybody. Hey, those people out there, they're getting ready to take away something important to you. But if you give me money, if you vote for me, if you come to my rally, then we will defeat them. And so if you give your followers a sense that we're winning, everything's okay. Religious liberty is on a winning streak at the Supreme Court, that we have positions of influence within our culture. That doesn't bring in much money or much enthusiasm, much support. So he wants to present himself as, oh my gosh, it's all falling apart. Please follow me so that I can save the day. And the people he's taking down, I mean, it's like Tim Keller. I mean, like (laughs) people who just simply don't deserve to have takedowns happen from inside of Christianity. Now, is that Owen Strachan or is that James Wood? Well, James Wood took down Tim Keller, but Owen Strachan has had his own boatload of tweets critiquing Tim Keller constantly. So here's why we're pro being winsome. For us, winsome is a code word for living and acting as though you think Jesus meant what he said on the Sermon on the Mount. That's all it is. It's a code word for saying, I want to try to treat people, humans, with kindness, charity, reasonableness. It's a code word for saying, hey, I want my life to be characterized by listening, by loving my enemies, by good faith debating. 
I don't bring matches. I don't bring knives. I don't do any of those things. I don't bring those things to a fight. Winsomeness is the willingness to win a debate without gloating over someone else and name calling or misrepresenting them. It's the willingness to admit that you don't know and to graciously defend what you do know. Winsomeness is curiosity. It's understanding that you don't actually have the corner on the truth and that other people hold their positions probably for reasonable reasons. Winsomeness is the rejection of the hermeneutic of suspicion that if you believe something different than me, I'm going to be suspicious of you. It's a practice of a hermeneutic of love. This is what winsomeness is about. It's self-effacing. It's not taking yourself seriously. It's having a laugh at your own expense. It's taking other people seriously. That's what we mean when we say winsome. And I just don't know how you can be against it. That's what I think Tim Keller means when he says winsome. I don't understand how a Christian can stand against this. I don't understand how you bring a match and say, I'm burning that down. Well, I think the reason that winsomeness, as you did a great job of defining it there, isn't valued. Instead, we bring matches to win a fight is because we're fighting the wrong battle. That somewhere along the line, we decided that we are trying to save America. Somewhere along the line, we started fighting a political and cultural battle instead of a battle against, you know, what the Bible would say are the spiritual forces of darkness. We got suckered into thinking that our enemy is flesh and blood people. And if you're going to practice winsomeness, then you can't see other people as your enemy. And you have to think, I am trying to build God's kingdom. And I am willing to lose a political and cultural battle in order to win a spiritual kingdom battle. Absolutely. I actually have a lot of sympathy for the James Woodses of the world, the Owen Strachans of the world, the Josh Dawes, all these people are kind of in this new anti-winsome, let's burn it down. We're the defenders of truth against all of you, you know, centrist libs out there. I get where they're coming from because progressives like Joe Lumen, who we've already talked about, they have a winner takes all, no holds bar style of rhetoric, which is evil. They are destructive. They are mean. They are unkind. They they are destructive with the words. And so I understand the impulse to respond in kind. (laughs) And yet I have to say, what would Jesus do? Is that how Jesus responds? Does Jesus respond to his enemies with the same violence that they show him? Of course not. He lays down his life for their sake. Doesn't he say to Pilate, if my kingdom were of this world, I'd call down the angels and, you know, we could open a can on you right here. That seems to be what James Wood and these figures, they want. They want the kingdom of the world. It's Greg Locke. Nothing's going to stand against this institution. We're going to take it over. But Jesus has a different goal. He's got a different ambition. His kingdom is not of this world. So he doesn't try to defeat his enemies. He dies for them. He doesn't condemn his enemies. He loves them. And it all depends on what kingdom you're fighting for and what the goal is and what is it you're really shooting for. And that's exactly right. I know some people hear kingdom not of this world and think that we're talking about heaven. That's not what we're saying. Jesus is saying, you and me, we are all a part of his kingdom. We are the expression, the living expression of his kingdom. And we are not of this world. In other words, we do not buy into the patterns of force, of using power to win the fight. We give into persuasion. We're like the apostle Paul who went from place to place, slowly over time, persuading people on the Areopagus, persuading people when he's in jail, persuading people in house churches. That was the model that Jesus gave us. You don't use force. You use persuasion and love and generosity and kindness. So if you want to burn down winsomeness, you are burning down the kingdom. I know what someone's going to ask us. What's the solution here? I think what we're trying to show is that we need to show a little more skepticism towards the so-called outsiders. Number one, they often aren't outsiders, even though that's what they're pretending to be. Number two, the institutions we have have failed us and they have lied to us and they have deceived us. And yet we still need them. 
I think the answer here is renewal and rebuilding and maybe the building of new institutions that can collect knowledge, but do so in a way that actually allows for disconfirmation. Do so in a way that allows for uncertainty. Do so in a way that is not a insider's club because everyone's going to know. We live in the information age. Everything is going to come out. There's nothing that's going to be hidden. So why not start there with our institutions? Let's live in the light together. Let's renew. Let's rebuild. Let's forgive what was wrong and see what we can build together. Thanks for listening. If you found this podcast helpful, make sure to subscribe and leave a review. And make sure it's at least five stars. Stop. No, just be honest. Reviews help other people find us. (laughs) Okay, okay. At the very least, you can share today's episode. Maybe put it on your social, your favorite text chain. And if you didn't like this episode, awesome. Tell us why you disagree on Twitter at truthovertribe underscore. We might even share your thoughts in an upcoming newsletter.